Welcome to episode 35 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. I'm delighted to have Dr. Gwenda Young as a special guest today. She recently published an exceptional biography called Clarence Brown, Hollywood's Forgotten Master with the University Press of Kentucky. This book is canon, people. You need to get a copy. And at the moment, it's on sale for the holidays at 40% off, which is a fantastic discount. So avail yourselves of that. I can't imagine a more definitive examination of Brown's life and work that would follow. We really cannot talk about woman's pictures without including a serious appraisal of Clarence Brown's productions. Gwenda Young's book makes an important distinction that George Cukor may have earned the reputation as being the woman's director, but Clarence Brown preceded him by a number of years. Brown established a style that women responded to. He gave quiet, thoughtful direction that developed women's confidence and permitted them to find their own way in a role. He was never shouty. He developed trust and a shared intimacy with women on set. Pauline Frederick, Laura LaPlante, Louise Dresser, Constance Bennett, Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Myrna Loy, and Jean Harlow gave some of their best performances with him. So, Gwenda, please, thank you for coming. But tell me, why did you choose Clarence Brown? Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, I'm really delighted to be able to speak about the book and about one of my favorite directors. Uh, so the, the the kind of backstory of why I decided to write about Clarence Brown was that I did a PhD quite a long time ago on uh, Jacques Tourneur. And in the process of researching it, I found a lot about his father, Maurice, and then when I finished the PhD and I was looking for other projects, um, I thought about Maurice as a, as a project. But one person who, who kind of struck me as being interesting was one of Maurice's uh, protégés, and that was Clarence Brown. And digging a little deeper, I discovered that he actually was responsible for two films that really influenced me as a child. I remember watching them on the television, which were um, National Velvet with Elizabeth Taylor mm -hmm. and also The Yearling with Claude Jarman. Um, and those I must have seen them, I guess, in the 80s in, on television in Ireland. And I realized that these were two films that really had a, an important uh, impact on me. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons that I chose him, that that this was a director who was really major director, had a career spanning, you know, five decades. So 1915 onwards to 1953 and who had worked with really some of the great stars such as Garba, who I was mad about and Joan Crawford, um, as well as those those animal pictures that I've mentioned. And nobody had really written much about him. I mean, there's there's some good articles. And of course, Kevin Brownlow has written about him in The Parade's Gone By. But nobody had um, devoted a, a full analysis, a full biography of his work. And it struck me as interesting. And that, that was interesting in itself. And I guess one of the reasons why the book is called um, Hollywood's Forgotten Master is that he would have been considered a master in in Hollywood circles during the 1920s to the 1950s. Uh, and yet he seems kind of overlooked or forgotten. I hope maybe not forgotten, but um, certainly he seems to be overlooked when those initial uh, histories of Hollywood were being written kind of in the 1960s and 70s of that, that auteur theory that was very influential at the time. Um, so he would have been seen to be a, quote, company man, 
which is kind of a backhanded compliment. Um, and also, Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think also the fact that he was pally with uh, Louis B. Mayer actually goes against him a little bit, you know, that he was seen to be somebody who kind of just was in the system. You know, it was much more attractive in the 60s and 70s when people were interviewing people like, uh, you know, Orson Welles. Or, or John, John Huston. John Huston, John Ford, the kind of guys that bucked the system or fought the system, whereas Brown didn't have that reputation. And, and he also didn't like doing interviews. So he, though he lived, he outlived most of them, actually, but uh, he didn't like doing interviews. So I guess he was overlooked for that reason, too. And maybe because his con- his conservative politics were sort of off-putting for a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, certainly. But, you know, the, when you think about some of the kind of wild men of, of Hollywood that have got a lot of press and a lot of attention, such as John Ford or William Wellman, equally conservative, mm-hmm. you know, very much right wing. Um, so I, it was that to some extent, but also the fact that he wasn't keen on on spinning the yarns or or being deliberately kind of uh, cantankerous in his in his dealings with the press or with with historians. In, in the case of of somebody like uh, John Ford, who who kind of was ownery and and made sure that uh, people were you know slavishly trying to write the biography of him, but you know were being mm-hmm. uh, receiving uh, rebuffs at every turn. Um, but yes, he was a conservative, um, and that, to be honest, was was very much a hallmark of his men of his generation in Hollywood. Um, you know, he he espoused very conservative views, and he was a member of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals in the nineteen forties and fifties. And yet, he wasn't as active as some members of that. Uh, and yet, he also made one of the great liberal films, one of the most complex uh, explorations of race in American cinema, which is Intruder in the Dust in 1949. So he was definitely a man of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly there were loads of women in Hollywood who were just as conservative, such as yeah. Barbara Stanwyck or Ginger Absolutely. Rogers yeah. and whatnot. Um, about a year ago on Twitter, I saw a rumor that someone was writing this book. And when mm-hmm. I finally found it about two months ago, I couldn't believe that it was a woman in Ireland. <laughs> and I was like, yay. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's been a long time in the works. And so the rumor probably was there for a while. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a book that's taken a lot of time to write, you know, for, for lots of reasons. But uh, there's a lot to be researched. You know, he had he started in 1915, as I said, and he finished up in 1953 as a, in career in his career, but he continued. He lived until 1987, so that's a long life. You know, mm-hmm. he was almost 100 before he died, um, and it was a lot of research in the American archives, various archives, and that is a challenge, obviously, if you're living in Ireland. Right. I was going to say that has <laughs> yeah. to put you at a disadvantage yeah. because you have to go there basically oh, to consult yeah. them all. Yeah, and how difficult was for for you to find all the films because they're not easy to find as well. Yeah. Um, I found most of them. Uh, I was a hugely uh, important mentor and that is Kevin Brownlow. Uh, he helped me so much with the silent films in particular. Um, he also helped me with the Maurice Turner films that were, um, as much as they're available, that, that Clarence Brown worked on. So I think I tracked down um, almost all of Clarence Brown's films with two exceptions, which was one of the, the his first directorial film. I mean, he part directed some films, but his his directorial debut, which is a film called The Great Redeemer, is a, is apparently a lost film. And we've tried everywhere. It's just not there. Um, and then there's another film, which is his first part sound film, uh, which is called Wonder of Women, uh, which also doesn't survive as far as we know. So other than that, it was a case of digging, I mean, digging on the public domain sites. Uh, Some of the quality of stuff is not great. Um, Mm -hmm. 
also the archives. I mean, some of the archives were very, for example, Butterfly, which is a film from 1924, I got to see in UCLA. And then eventually I got a, a copy of it myself. But uh, the other archive that was really useful and helpful to me was George Eastman House in Rochester. Um, okay. because they have a lot of the early stuff and they're extremely nice to deal with and extremely helpful to deal with. So well, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. OK. Um, so the Wall Street Journal gave you a fantastic review, which is, was, you know, really good to see. Um, is it true that it took you 10 years to write the book? <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds really bad. Uh, no, no. It I, was kind I, of stops and starts, to be honest with you. There was a lot of other things going on. I mean, I'm kind of a full time job that's right. trying to juggle everything, actually. So I think a good book probably does take that long to write actually. Yeah. So. Well, I, I think I kind of I'm a person who kind of rewrites things a lot and mm -hmm. then I go back to the original draft, you know, I'm kind of um, so there's a lot of research and it's a big subject because, you know, you're not just writing about him or his films, you're writing about everything around it. So, you know, you do a bit of research on some of the cinematographers mm -hmm. or on the stars themselves. And I'm the kind of person who likes to once I'm in there, I'm, I want to see everything then that that director did that was a friend of Clarence's or, you know, if it was a case of um, looking at uh, Pauline Frederick and, and trying to find out a bit more about her life before you kind of write about her, you know. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you do a lot of research and then you end up, unfortunately, like this, the first draft was a lot lar larger as a book. You know, it was it was mm -hmm. quite a big book. So you have to let <laughs> things go as well, which is always a bit of a shame. But, you know, but I guess that's part of the process. But your sentences yeah. are lovely, really. I mean, they're, it just everything just flows and you're just swept away. It's, well, it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the, the challenge, I guess, was somebody advised me uh, who's a biographer because I didn't necessarily start out. I kind of coming from an academic background, I was thinking more of like a, an academic study of his work, you know, and. Then it kind of the biography start got stuff got more and more interesting and more useful to kind of inter inter intertwine into the the analysis and uh, a friend who is a biographer has talked about the narrative of 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 a book you need to have a narrative you need to kind of give a sense of somebody's evolution as a person and also their work um, and that there should be a a thread running through it. So that was very helpful, you know, advice. And it made it kind of easier then to drop some of the work that wasn't or some of the material that wasn't as relevant to that narrative. And know? I think that's why your book is going to be read and it's going to be a big bestseller. I really think so. <laughs> I don't so. About that, but thank you very much. For because saying most it. academic books are pretty dreadful. They're, <laughs> they're just, they, sh they sort of suffocate you with citation and they mm -hmm. lose the thread of the narrative of the story mm -hmm. and yours doesn't. Well, there were a lot more citations in there originally, but the footnotes, <laughs> I had to let go of the footnotes because mm -hmm. I kept putting things in. You know, you get this idea of that they won't notice if you put the footnotes in, like that the word count doesn't count. Kind mm -hmm. of. Um, but actually, I took a little bit of time away from it after I'd submitted the kind of first finished draft. And it was really useful to take some time away and just say, actually, I can let go of those some of those footnotes now, you know. I, can. I think part of it is just you want to show everything you've encountered, yes. like, look at all the stuff Absolutely. I read. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You want to be trying to be scrupulous as well. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I came back, I came from a kind of history background initially. And so you do feel that that's embedded in kind of what you do is that you want to show that you've done the research that you're trying to. And also, you know, there's a bit of pressure, I guess, because it's the first book on his uh, full, first full length book on his work. So you kind of want to be the one that will tell as much as you can about the, the sources and about his 
context and the text. Themselves. Oh, I, I hear you. Don't leave uh, anything for anyone else to do. You want to <laughs> well, be definitive. I'm sure. I don't no. care now. They can all do it. I don't care at this stage because uh, it's at least I've done mine now. So I, anybody can write another one. Fine. What was the thing that most surprised you about him, about his life? And and I I mean, I, you do an excellent job with that he wasn't a company man, that he had so much depth and ri- richness in his own artistic vision. But what else do you think about the popular conceptions of Clarence Brown that, you, that surprised you or changed your mind about what you thought about him? Well, I think that... I- if you read some of the just general histories of Hollywood and he if he's mentioned at all, it might be in a footnote or it might be just as Garbo's favorite director or it might be just that he is seen to be somebody who is able to, you know, manage a production, tow the company line. Uh, but he was a company guy. He was kind of an anonymous suit. And what I discovered really was how much he invested himself in a lot of his productions, uh, had very much personal projects that he worked on. Um, that he tried, I think he's a very pragmatic guy. He's, he seems to me to be somebody who balanced the needs of his p- p- profession. He was under contract with studio and for most of his career, he was under the contract to MGM, which is not a, a you know, experimental studio. It's the most conservative of all the, of the Hollywood studios. Um, but what I found was that he he's a very good example of somebody who can juggle that and can kind of build up a number of brownie points by directing projects that are safe studio projects and but do something interesting with a lot of them. But he can also then argue for some personal projects. And I guess one of the things that surprised me was how much he loved shooting on location, how much he loved intimate stories, how much he liked stories of America um, and kind of the simple folk of America, mm-hmm. as opposed to the big star vehicles that you associated with. You know, all the time he's talked about as Garbo's favorite director, and he's very good with Garbo some of the time, not all of the time. Um, but he's also had, I think he was so comfortable in stories that I think reflect some of his past as um, a boy growing up in the South and in small town America, you know, he, he he was born in Massachusetts and grew up in small town America, but then moved to Knoxville in Tennessee. So those kinds of stories of East Tennessee uh, rural life actually appealed to him quite a bit. Um, it's interesting that his first film as an assistant to Maurice Turner is a, a film called The Cub, which is uh, set in kind of East Appalachia, it's that kind of Appalachian background, um, feuding families, you know. Um, so and then one of his last great films is In Through the Dust, which brings him back to to the South. So really what appealed to me was that he he surprised me with how eclectic he could be, uh, how romantic he could be, um, how he had this um, this hard nosed business exterior, but also quite a, a soft kind of interior. Gooey center. Yeah, but that, and sometimes that goes into sentimentality. But, you know, and that's also the pressure of, of MGM and certain periods in American cinema history. Um, he also, I think, um, is a great women's director and mm-hmm. a great director of children and animals. Um, so those things appeal to me, too. I don't think he's, he's not an action director. He doesn't do so well, except maybe one or two times in his career where he's called upon to make kind of action films. I mean, The Eagle with Rudolph Valentino is a very good film. Um, and that's a, a male protagonist, but he also has Louise Dresser as, as the supporting role there. Um, but he worked very well with with women and he worked with, I think, some of the best performances that some of the stars that you've mentioned, um, the female stars you've mentioned, like Garbo, Crawford in particular, I think, mm-hmm. Myrna Loy, some of their best performances are in brand films, in my opinion. 
Myrna Loy with the water glass that you call attention to that scene. It's yeah. devastating it's every time you see it. Yeah, that's it's the, so quiet. It's so quiet. And, and that's in The Rain's Came, which was a loan out that he did for Fox. And, uh, you know, according to Myrna Loy, she was not Daryl Zanuck's choice. And, you know, he didn't want to cast her for whatever reason. And I think that Brown, she found an ally in Brown. She had worked with Brown before, back in um, the film Emma, which is a lovely film made in, in the early 30s with uh, Marie Dresler. Um, and so they had they kind of had a little alliance against uh, Zanuck, even though actually Brown did like Daryl Zanuck uh, the one time that he worked with them. Um, but that quiet, it's a silent film in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, even though it's not a silent film. But that scene that you mentioned with the, the where she realizes that she's sealed her fate by taking a sip from an infected glass because she's tending to cholera victims. Uh, it's played out like a silent film. And that, I think, is where because Brown learned his craft in the silent era. He's so subtle and he's he's a master. He can be a master of, of long takes. Let the actor just do their thing. Mm-hmm. And he was a great believer in professional actors should be allowed to do their thing. You know, he wasn't an interventionist type of a director. He He's often um, it's been compared kind of he compared himself actually at one point to Lubitsch. And the criticism he had about Lubitsch was that Lubitsch acted out the scenes for his actors and then told them to do it like that. And he felt that was not how you proceed. So what he is very good at, Brown is very good at kind of standing back and letting the actor do their job, as it were. And sometimes that has bad effects because if the actor's not up to it, that can be a problem. And Cukor would be much more about, you know, uh, coaxing the performance and and being very attentive to the skill of acting, Brown is less so, except in the case of of actors who are inexperienced or, or child, child actors in particular. He was very good at, at coaxing them. Um, but in that scene from The Rains Came, he he really let Myrna Loy just just very slowly kind of the reveal is you know that she realizes and there's that moment where she realizes what she's done. Um, mm-hmm. And it's beautifully, if that had been cut fast, if that had been, it wouldn't have the impact, you know. No, I, I agree. Absolutely. You, one of the best parts I love is how you notice his observational camera movements as such a, with the, the glass tumbler mm-hmm. and in other places with, um, say, um, Garbo uh, embracing the bouquet mm-hmm. in A Woman of Affairs, which is my favorite Garbo picture. Mm-hmm. I think Me it's too, her actually. best work. And it's a very... Um, it's a more difficult film to track down, actually, than than some of the other ones because the it wasn't. Done. Have it. Oh yeah, but it's just <laughs> that it was put out by Photoplay in mm-hmm. in the nineteen nineties, I guess, on video. So you know, and it's a lovely, a lovely version with I think it's a Carl Davis score is on it. But it's for some reason it wasn't put out with that box set um, that that came out. You remember the Garbo box right. set that came out? Right, um, it, it has three of her silence on it. it yes, yeah. um, but it doesn't have that one. It doesn't have that weird. one, which I think is one of her strongest because she's in a role which is a contemporary role. It's, you know, a 1920s uh, setting. And it's a beautifully understated um, performance. And she's really come into herself as an actress by then, I think, you know, that she's um, also perhaps more sympathetic to the role than she would be. I mean, her first film with Brown was Flesh and the Devil, which is sumptuous and fabulous and over the top and everything else. But she was not very happy making it. And she was also felt there was a lot of cliches in the in the. the conception of the character, you know, the femme fatale character, mm-hmm. whereas I think Woman of Affairs is more her style um, and that understated 
And it really, in many ways, it sets the tone for how Garbo's persona in films anyway, uh, developed in the 30s, this idea of the, the, the woman who is surrounded by unworthy men. Oh, you who know? just They're shout just abuse useless. at her. Yeah, They're yeah. awful and they all condemn her and she just uh, yeah. absorbs it all yeah. with this dignity. Yeah, the, the kind of stoicism of her. Um, and that I love that scene with the flowers where, you know, just to put it in the context, is that she's she's had spent her life with the most unworthy suitor ever, <laughs> which is actually played by John Gilbert, um, who's who's really interesting in the film, even though he was kind of condemned by many critics. Um, but he did say that he wanted to take a role that was a weak role. That was a, a he's a sniveling little, you know, hypocrite, really. But she's she's all the time been loyal to him and he's never returned the loyalty. And uh, in the scene that you mentioned, she she's had a stillbirth, apparently, you know, it, it doesn't quite go into the details, but it's not a, it's not a, an abortion. Some people say it's an abortion, but I think there's a calendar that even flicks off nine months. And so it's pretty obvious what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she comes out in a kind of a fog uh, out of the, the um, hospital room, she sees flowers and she goes towards the flowers and grasps them as if they're a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and that scene unfolds so beautifully. It's so it's she's so dignified and so poignant, um, but also the other supporting female in that, which is uh, Dorothy um, Sebastian is beautifully played, beautifully understated mm-hmm. in a role that could have been so unsympathetic because she's the rival for John Gilbert's. Right, there's no cattiness there. No. She's like, they yeah. can't help it. They love each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a, there's a lovely look of understanding between her and the Garbo character within the scene. And I think that's a really good illustration. That was made in 1928. But by that stage, Brown had been making films with women who are surrounded by unworthy men <laughs> since 1923, really. So he had made a number of films uh, with Pauline Frederick, with um, uh, Laura LaPlante, uh, Ruth Clifford. And so he had that, I think, a sympathy without trying to, you know, I've always tried to be a little bit sceptical about the auteur theory because I do think there are, there are limitations and I'm not suggesting that Brown wrote any of the films. He didn't. Uh, he did participate in some rights, rewrites, but I think there is a sympathy with Brown towards women who are kind of the underdog underdog or marginalized in some way or living in the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be Garbo suffering um, and, and pursuing the wrong type of love or, or um, you know, when, it, when we come back to something like Anna Karenina, which of course is set, is, is based on a, on a very well-known novel. So we're not suggesting that's a brown film in that way, but it, it, he is the natural fit as a director for something like Anna Karenina, because it's also a natural fit for Garbo, because by that stage in 35, she had kind of cornered the market in um, stoic heroines who are tragic, where time is running out for them. You know, there's Mm -hmm. always that feeling with Garbo where they're living on some sort of borrowed time. Um, And that's something that you see, that marginalized woman you see it in in a lot of other Brown films. So he's kind of drawn to those stories. And in, in the sense in that picture that I like, too, is that the men are all running up against brick walls. They're all doomed mm-hmm. in a way that I wish she hadn't been, Diana yeah. hadn't been. Yeah. That one of the best observational camera moments that I love in that picture is when um, Johnny Mac Brown is going in to see Garbo and he... Mm-hmm. 
pulls out of his pocket a wad of rice Mm -hmm. and it's this little mound in the palm of his hand and it's all fecund and he's going into the bridal room and she's lying dead center in the bed (laughs) no room for him playing with the light because she's totally in the dark and then when the door that the knock of the door arrives he walks he opens it and the the grains of rice fall out of his hand like sand through an hourglass like his time is up yeah and that prepares us for what happens for what happens and it's it's a very naughty uh, scene actually with the you don't the I didn't jerking see it coming, of, of that you know? did you not know no. because I think they were deliberately uh, you know that was a novel that they were adapting that was extremely risque and everybody the censor you know that was 1928 so the censors weren't as strict as 34 onwards but mm-hmm. nonetheless this was a famous novel or infamous novel and the very mention of the name of the novel is the green hat and first of all they had to change the name because it was so scandalous that novel um, so I think they t- did the usual the kind of visual allusions and stuff that that uh, gets around some of the controversial content and mm-hmm. they did take out some of the content. But nonetheless, there's a lot there. And what you mentioned there is, is a very kind of poignant the, the, and it is a, the idea of women being constrained by roles, but men being constrained by roles, too, is very significant in that film. Uh, but it's also indicative of Brown's symbolism that he likes visual symbolism quite mm-hmm. a bit and actually he got criticised quite a lot about that. Um, there was one critic in particular who was always sniping at every review going, oh, Brown's penchant for a visual symbolism, you know, just, Aww, which I like. That unfair. Because, I like it yeah, as well. Yeah, I think I think that's a very much a throwback also to his silent era roots. You know, there was that, the 20s was full of that in, in American cinema anyway. There was a lot of But, you know, when he falls away from that economy of storytelling, which I think the observational camera really lends, Mm -hmm. then I like his films less, like, Mm -hmm. say, for um, Idiot's Delight. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much speechifying in that picture, like Burgess Meredith, shut up a little bit, (laughs) pull your voice down. Like, it's just so talky that it seems like he's lost the run or his core principles that make Mm -hmm. a good picture for Brown. Yeah, I think Brown... Really, his roots are in the silent era and his strongest work is in in films where the, the visuals do the talking, where the actors don't necessarily say a lot, but they might there might be gestures, there might be facial expressions. And, you know, that's good for Garbo as well, because Garbo is much better mm-hmm. at that than she is at delivering long speeches. Uh, the film you mentioned, Idiot's Delight, was not a film that Brown wanted to make. It was a mess of a film even before it started shooting. Um, it was a film that was produced just on the brink kind of, of World War II. Uh, Europe was big, just going into war. So they had to appease everybody. You know, initially it was going to be set in Italy. And of course, they had to appease Mussolini and make sure that there was nothing put in about, you know, nothing too, um, nothing that would condemn the rise of fascism. So it's really hard to make a film which is about anti-fascism and not condemn it. Um, he also did not like certain people in that yeah. film. And he didn't like um, Norma Shearer. As an, uh, that's one of the few times where he actually commented in later interviews. He was very, he was always very respectful of everybody he worked with, but there was some people he didn't like and, and she was one of them. Um, and she, He was a bit of, I think, unfair on her, but... Um, he's not great in films where there's lots of speeches. He's also not great in the early sound era. He he takes a while to adjust to the sound technology. Um, so some of the early Garbo aren't as good as once he gets into his stride kind of around 1932, 33, uh, he works better. But again, the visual and 
the moments of silence are often what's the strongest elements of, of Brown's work. I mean, his last great film, I think, is Intruder in the Dust, which is an extraordinarily visually uh, intricate film. And its strengths are in the moments of silence or natural soundtrack. You know, it, it's set mm -hmm. in the South and there's a whole sequence where they, they're looking for the evidence that the, the accused, accused man is not guilty of murder and they have to go into this remote area in the woods at night. And it's almost a silent film in that in that particular moment. Um, and that's one of the strongest scenes where there's this building up of, of tension and you just hear a little crackling of the woods mm -hmm. or you hear at the hoot of an owl um, and you hear a gust of wind, but there's very little dialogue. Um, but I think he does when he's when Brown is confronted with directing a film where there's a lot of speeches um, and especially Idiot's Delight is a film of just speeches. You mm -hmm. know, and even then, very stagey, kind of yeah. stagey. And they're also watered down speeches. So they don't it's neither fish nor fat. It doesn't work really as anti-fascism because it's just watered down. And it's also very much a stage adaptation still. Mm -hmm. um, he's not that comfortable with that. One of my my favorite Clarence Brown film actually is Sadie McKee, which mm -hmm. I think surprises some people. They're like, "Oh, Sadie McKee, what, what, that's mm -hmm. just a, a slight picture." But for me, again, it's it's the images in there. That there's the one scene with Joan Crawford in the um, automat. It's only forty two mm -hmm. seconds long, but I think about that scene all the time, and it's my sort of centering scene that I think about when I sit down to write. Yeah, because that's how I think of myself, or like what the writer's sort of problem is that Joan is penniless. She's alone. She has, you know, no visible means of support, no job. She has a nickel in her hand to mm -hmm. get a cup of coffee at the automat and like scavenge for leftovers. Mm -hmm. And there she sees a big fat man who stubs out, you know, his cigarette yeah. on the lemon meringue pie that uh, she wanted to eat. Yes. That's a metaphor for the depression. But yeah. it's this idea that she looks fabulous, though. Mm. I mean, her clothes aren't expensive, but she looks very stylish and put mm. together so that it conceals all that stuff with her style. So mm. I want to conceal my anxiety, yeah. my feeling like a pauper with words when I sit down to write. Yeah. yeah. So that's I mean, I return to that all the time. Yeah. Um, and again, it's sound. It's, you know, it's a silent yeah. scene. But that scene is a silent scene. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, everything is conveyed where... Her expectation, oh, look, a lemon meringue pie, mm -hmm. and, but the waste of it that this guy just stubs his cigarette out and she couldn't even realize how hungry she is that she really wanted that. Criminal. Yeah, it's criminal. Um, I mean, that's one of the, her better films, I think, with Brown. I mean, she made six films altogether with Brown. And um, I well, my personal one would be Possessed, which I think is, mm -hmm. is a fabulous film. And I think it really helps establish Crawford's persona in the 30s. And I think, again, a silent moment, which is that scene where the, having, train. Yeah, the train having come on out of her paper box factory and she <laughs> wants to get away from this awful place that she's living in. And there's a wonderful uh, tracking shot where we see her future mapped out, which is people, a, a wife surrounded by kids with a, a brutish husband who's coming home drunk. And that's the future she will have if she stays in this dead end place. And instead she goes across the tracks or gets stopped in the tracks because <laughs> she's from the wrong side of the tracks and sees this train. And it just slowly rumbles past. And it's a series of screens as she looks on at what the world of work and then the world of leisure and decides 
I'll go for the world of leisure. You right. know? Um, and that scene, again, it unfolds almost. It, it's, there is sound in it and there is some dialogue in it, but very little. It's it's the visual again with Brown that he he conveys it really beautifully. And it's it's a, probably one of my favorite scenes in Brown's films because I think it's it is a kind of metaphor for cinema and what the cinema in Depression era America could offer. And it also ties in beautifully with Crawford's own persona and her developing persona. Because, you know, we think about Garbo as this wonderful star of the, the 1920s and 30s. But the people identified more with Crawford, mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of sad in one way that they were working at the same studio. And I think Crawford had a bit of an inferiority complex thinking that, you know, she was nothing compared to Garbo. Um, and Garbo was the one that was beloved of, of intellectuals. And yet the one that spoke to depression era audiences is a lot more as the 30s went on really was was Crawford. Um, you quote uh, one um, uh, picture exhibitionist who said, you know, Garbo doesn't play in the sticks, yeah. basically. No. Yeah. But but Crawford did. Yeah, absolutely. The shop girls, you know, they learn from her. If you have the right clothes, you can get out of here. Yeah. You can move on. Yeah, but I think there was a big disservice to call her kind of the shop girl's choice because it's quite demeaning about shop girls. First well, of I all. think yeah. shop girls are fabulous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it is a kind of a it's a, com a kind of a, a comment that puts down as if they're dumb. And mm -hmm. what I noticed with and I know you're 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 a big expert on, on the pre-code era. Um, what I've noticed is how smart these films are. And the more I research how smart audiences were, you know, this idea that audiences didn't get some of the double entendres, of course they did. You know, they there's did. not innocence in 1920s and 30s that were, you know, they were sophisticated in many ways as we are today. So um, I think with Crawford, she she was, look, I mean, the, the point is Crawford was beautiful and, and she she did, she looked fabulous in her, her Adrian gowns. Mm -hmm. But she also had that down to earth quality. And I think Brown in particular really liked her because um, he had his run ins with with Garbo because she could be a little difficult. Um, but Crawford, she, he really liked Crawford because she was a real worker. Mm -hmm. You know, she just got on with it. And as you say, exhibitors didn't really necessarily want, especially by the mid 30s, they didn't want Garbo films as much in the country. Um, fine in New York, fine in LA, London and so on. Everybody loved Garbo in France and so on. But, you know, if you're playing in Kansas, the uh, the choice between a Garbo film and a Crawford film, Crawford played a lot better. People knew where they stood, as it were. Or she's she's giving you sort of um, a lesson in how to get out of where you are. Yeah, well, that's how to that survive, as well. yeah. how to um, improve yourself, that this stuff isn't you're not born with it like Garbo. You have to work your butt off to get yeah. it. And that's the thing. It's it's also about the depression, speaking to the depression, giving that sense of hope. You can get out. You can. You know, I don't know what it is that what that people like about me, but I know I have something kind of, you know, and that's what Gar that's what Crawford uh, says in some of her films in, in roundabout ways. Um, but that hope that also ties in with all the star stories about Crawford, you know, it was out there that she came from a dirt poor background. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think the fact that Garbo was from Sweden, people didn't really know, they just thought it was foreign, you know, and actually she came from a dirt poor background too, <laughs> you know, but um, it was easier to kind of identify with Crawford because she, she was a worker worker. She worked and worked and she, of course, gave all those interviews in the 20s and, and especially in the early 30s in which she talked about the value of work. And, you know, work didn't finish for her at five o'clock. It, it continued on. She wrote back to her fans. She participated in the publicity. Mm -hmm. 
and that was much said, much commented on. You know, the studios liked also, like MGM and later Warner Brothers liked working with her because she, she played the game. You know, she she publicity made her film. Publicity was part of it, and you know? publicity was part of it. Mm-hmm. And we might see that as phony, and we know a lot about you know Crawford's the alleged allegations against her by her her daughter. But what appealed to people in the Depression era was this the sense that she wasn't this diva star. She was pally with everybody on the set and she was famously, and it seems fairly sincere that she was friendly with people on the set. She remembered the technicians that she worked with and remembered them 30 years later and knew about their children and so on. Um, But she also expressed a lot her gratitude for the chances she had been given. Whereas, you know, the press would carry stories of Garbo saying, I'm going to go home. Right. You know, which I, I kind of wonder, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, how much of that was used by MGM. Those stories were put forward by MGM to control Garbo, to put her back in her place, make her slight, because I think there was a little bit of that in the early 30s, trying to control her a bit by making, sending out negative stories about her behaviour so that people would turn against her a little bit and it might damage slightly the box office but it would also be then used as some sort of leverage yeah you know to keep I could her. see them doing that I yeah. mean they, they always had something on someone yeah and I don't think they, they they would they'd never sabotage a film obviously that's not in their interest but maybe there was a little bit of we, we won't control the negative stories about her as much as we might about other stars that are towing the line in the studio we won't send the fixers out for her yeah 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 so so there's a lot between herself and brown in the early 30s where there's a kind of a falling out which is, is surprising that you actually read about the falling out in the publicity of the time you know usually they keep that under wraps a bit more in the 30s and there was stuff written about her her um her behavior on romance the set of romance and later on of inspiration and it's interesting when I was kind of researching, I was really surprised to read those. They were coming out and nobody was trying to squash the story. Um, and then I read in another biography that she was in the middle of salary negotiations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so I think there was there was a, a, a kind of a different narrative being put out about her. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, Garbo had was very sure about what she wanted to be in in the 1930s as opposed to her. She very little say about her career in the 1920s. Um, and sometimes it was said that she didn't always take the advice she should have taken from people like um, Brown, from George Cukor, from David Selznick. Um, they were advising her to take modern roles. She should have done more modern yeah. roles. I will take inspiration over Camille any day of the week. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not as enamored with her in the period dress. And and, okay. I, and I don't really ever say to myself, I want to watch a period film and watch a woman in a big dress. Yeah. I want to see them in contemporary 1930s clothes. That's, yeah. And she, you know, it's rare with her. Um, she moves better. She looks happier. She yeah. looks more like herself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that I think I, I really think Anna Karenin is a very good point in her career and that's a very good performance that she gives. I think she is right for the role. I mean, I must say that I think just even compare, comparing her to another actress who I like very much is Vivian Lee, but mm-hmm. she's nowhere near as, as as interesting as Anna in the later version of Anna Karenina. Uh, but then, you know, as you said, she also makes a film like conquest she should is, not have she made should that. not have made no. and she was told not to make it she was kind of advised this is not a good idea brown didn't even want to make the film um the uh i think who's the producer was 
she was advised, I think at one stage she was talking to Selznick and that was a little bit further back and he was telling her not to make any more historical roles. So conquest was against everybody's advice that she ploughed ahead in. And that became a hugely unwieldy production. And, you know, the, basically the film was stolen from her by by Charles Boyer. Um, he's and, so good in it. Though. Yeah, yeah, he's great in it. And, and um, you know, I think I think she kind of the film that then brings her back up again is Ninochka, which is, mm-hmm. you know, was a welcome return to a contemporary role. And she's really funny in it because she's deadpan, you know, and right. that's the first time she's actually played a comedic role albeit a role where she's kind of the butt of the joke or, or you know, that she's kind of deadpanning back um, and working with an actor who's a very strong actor, who's Melvin Douglas, who's a great... Oh, he is such an underrated leading man. Fantastic actor. Love you know? him. Fabulous. I mean, the charm and he's just, mm-hmm. he just walks into the room and he's... he's he makes up. every woman look better. Yeah. He just enhances every yeah, woman he works fabulous. with. Yeah. But, um, you know, um, to get to back to Clarence Brown, one of the stories near the end was so sort of jarring and um, really moving. And I don't use poignant very often, but the story that you tell of when he was in Atlanta in 1906 mm. was something I don't think that most people who are even film buffs know about. Yeah. And really, if you, you know, if you were a Freudian analyst, mm-hmm. you'd say, wow, you know, this is everything right here in yeah. a sense. Yeah. It, it, would, would you want to tell that? Yeah, I mean, he, as I said, was born, though he was born in Massachusetts, in Clinton, Massachusetts, he was actually raised in Knoxville, Tennessee. And his grandparents, his actually, one thing I should just, for an Irish audience is his mother is Irish and she comes from Grey Abbey in Northern Ireland. Um, but his his paternal line is very much the South. So Georgia in particular. Um, and Though he was raised in Tennessee, his grandparents remained in Georgia. So on a trip to see his grandparents in 1906, so he was about 16 at the time, he was uh, caught up in the race riots there. There was a vicious race riot. Uh, lots of race riots happened in the South at the time, but this one was particularly bad. And there's kind of varying numbers of how many people were killed. Um, but this, this is it's such a strange story. And it's so it's kind of really great anecdote for me in the sense that he sought refuge in the Bijou Theatre, which was a uh, was actually a uh, uh, vaudeville theatre. I think it became a, a film theatre later on. But he he took refuge there, and from the balcony he observed what was going on outside, and he witnessed all sorts of horrendous behaviour, really violent um, lynchings and. You know, lynchings were, as I said, commonplace still in the South, but he had never seen. He was a very sheltered child. Uh, He was the only child and he was brought up in a kind of middle class background. And Knoxville itself as a city was a much more racially balanced city that actually had pretty good race relations, whereas Atlanta obviously was a much bigger city. And so he was exposed to something he, he, he knew happened, but he'd never seen it firsthand. He was haunted by what he saw. And another person who actually was was involved in the race riots or was caught up in it was Wal- uh, Walter White, who later became head of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who also worked with the Hollywood studios in the 1940s and consulted with Brown on Intruder in the Dust. So that's an interesting kind of, you know, six degrees of separation there. But anyway, Brown witnessed these this horrific event and he was haunted by it. And always he said that he felt a sense of guilt. I mean, he didn't become involved in it himself, but he felt guilty about how 
the black citizens had been treated by white people. So he had a kind of collective sense, a burden of guilt as a white man. And, you know, he he developed his film career. He worked for MGM. He was known as the director of stars and of family movies and so on. But the one film he wanted to make was something that would talk about race. As a southerner, he wanted to talk about it. And so in 1949 and towards the end of his career, really, at a time of huge corporate upheaval in MGM, he used in some ways his friendship with Louis B. Mayer to argue that, you know, I've delivered all of these films for 20 years. I've worked as a good, solid director. I want to make one personal project and I have just read a book that I want to make. And that was William Faulkner. Uh, his his uh, novel Intruder in the Dust. So it becomes this labor of love for him. He has to persuade MGM to make it because MGM was not interested in making a film in which a black man is the central role, has the central ca- uh, lead role and who is not the usual stereotypical black characterization that you have in screen on screen in the 1930s and 40s. He's not a singer. He's not a performer. He's not comic relief. He is a strong commanding figure, uh, a kind of patriarchal figure, actually. Um, and so it, Brown had to win over this, these all these um, naysayers. He also sought uh, help from Dari Sherry, who was snapping at um, Louis V. Mayer's heels and trying to take over as, mm-hmm. as a head. Um, and he went back to his roots, as it were. He went, uh, stripped down the film. He, he you know, thinking about William Faulkner is not an easy novelist to adapt. Previous versions of William Faulkner novels on screen have not been successful. I mean, I'm thinking of things like Sanctuary, which was um, the story of Temple Drake with um, Miriam Hopkins in the 1930s. Very hard to make. I mean, if you read Faulkner, it's just how would you put that on screen, you know? So he Brown stripped it all back. Um, he worked with a, a, a writer that would later be blacklisted, um, ben Maddow. And they went to Oxford, Mississippi, which is where Faulkner lived and, and was kind of, he was writing about that area, but wasn't quite saying it. Uh, you know, he had his own fictional country, as it were. Um, and they shot on location there. And Brown cast Juano Hernandez, who was a Puerto Rican actor, um, in the lead role of Lucas Beecham. And he also used Claude Jarman, who was his was Brown's own discovery for the yearling. And he was now a gangling teenager. And they involved some of the local people in some of the roles, which are priceless roles where you have, you know, because one of the things that William Faulkner had based the story of a lynching that happened in in Oxford, Mississippi. And so he had based the, 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 the novel on somewhat loosely on that. And Brown because he was such a good businessman and so experienced and so conservative, the townspeople thought that this was a guy who would bring business to them. And so he cast them in roles in which they're kind of supporting lynching and it makes them look dreadful. Uh, <laughs> but he got their support and he was allowed to film in, in the town and enthusiastically the town uh, participated. And after a few months uh, filming there, he or a few weeks actually filming there, um, he put the film together and had huge expectations. This was such an important film of all the films he ever made. This was the most important and personal film that he ever made that he had to make. And it around the lot, it was even said, you know, this is Clarence's, you know, it's his pet project. And when he came back, time had kind of moved on in the sense of other studios had released race 
race relation films, all mm -hmm. of them in 1949, and his was the last. And by the time it was released, people were less interested. The black press were very skeptical about these race race relation films that white Hollywood was putting out. And also MGM just didn't push the film. They they lost their nerve. And he was that was the kind of the finishing point of his career in many ways, even though he managed, made a number of films after that. For him, it was over at that point. You know, the one film that made, meant something to him, which was critically acclaimed by both white and black press, by European film critics, by American film critics. It bombed. The film bombed at the box office and MGM just did nothing to push it. And I think that kind of turned him away from the studio and he just kind of lost interest in the last few years of his career. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a pity he didn't finish his career there because it would have been a lovely end. You know, it would have been the full circle thing of something formative in his childhood. He made the film. He finally got it out. He exercised mm -hmm. his, his demons, as it were. Um, now, he makes a few more films after that. Not Some of them OK, but not the best of his work. Okay, well, that's wonderful. Um, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank okay. you so much for coming out today uh, to you. talk about your book. Please do go uh, do yourself a favor and get a copy. And like I said, it's on sale at 40% discount right now. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 36 when I talk about Joan Crawford and Above Suspicion from 1943. Thanks very much. Bye.